Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Xinyin Kwaila, happy year of the pig. Today we're joined by two artists who are rewriting black narratives with the help of technology. Artist and scientist Ash Bacchus Clark talks about her work with the Black Comics Expo. The only way to get out of this mental slavery is to build our own narratives. Because like, if you're stuck in something for so long, you have no choice but to start believing it. And Idris Brewster suggests a hack for dealing with racist monuments without waiting for politicians. We use augmented reality as of right now as a medium to unearth stories of marginalized groups and people of color. And so we think that this is a tr very interactive and immersive medium that can facilitate change, not only in our cultural institutions, but in our public spaces and in our classrooms. Black Panther came out a year ago, swiftly destroying box office expectations and any arguments that Michael B. Jordan is not the most attractive man alive. As a comic book character, Black Panther was introduced in 1966, but it took more than 50 years and 1.4 billion in box office returns to prove that the public is hungry for non-white superheroes. For the second year in a row, comic book writers, illustrators, and fans will be coming together at BAM to celebrate diversity and inclusion at the Black Comics Expo on Sunday. Among them will be an artist and molecular biologist who will be on a panel about representations of black women in sci-fi. To tell us more, we welcome Ash Bacchus-Clark to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So are you like a comic book person? I like looking at comic books. I really love graphic novels. And just thinking about what comic books have meant in the history of visual representation. I think bringing an artistic practice to mass media and giving more people access where, you know, galleries and museums and things like that can feel a little out of touch for a lot of folks. I think graphic novels help convey a point in a way that's easily digestible. It's a very democratic art form and form of narrative. Yeah. And also, um, historically, like a lot of the most famous superhero characters were sort of stand-ins for, for oppressed peoples, right? Like mm -hmm. around World War II, a lot of the major comic book artists and illustrators were Jews. And directly or indirectly, a lot of the work dealt with sort of the struggle of an oppressed class of people. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about thoughts that you might have about like what superheroes might mean to other marginalized populations. Yeah, superheroes can be representative of overcoming things. You know, the hero's journey is what I think a lot of, you know, most heroes follow this sort of cyclical pattern of accepting a challenge and then doing that challenge, going through a process of rebirth and then emerging and bringing back what they've learned to the community. And so thinking about what superheroes have met in the history of struggle, um, in the history of overcoming, even if it's a fictional story, but a story that shows someone overcoming something, I think has instilled in the popular imagination in a way that has allowed us to just go through the humanity's journey, really. Why do you think it took such an incredibly long time for a Hollywood to acknowledge that maybe people might want to see a female superhero in the case of Wonder Woman and a black superhero in the case of Black Panther? Well, we have to look at who controls media. You know, it's 
having to prove that the numbers are there or that there's going to be a return on investment for having heroes that, you know, don't look like dominant culture, which is to this point in, in film has been, you know, white culture. Right now we're in this kind of shift of power, this like renegotiation of power and having images like this on screen is it's a form of, of seeding that power. I think it's funny to me that it's not as if Hollywood wasn't making movies, like quote unquote, for women or for people of color. They were just in their own lanes and they didn't intersect with superhero movies. There was yeah. like some notion that like superhero movies were going to be exclusively for white guys. And so like women could only have uh, like rom-coms or like <laughs> black people could only have like black genre films. Yeah. Uh, and that all of a sudden Hollywood was like collectively surprised that archetypes like superheroes appealed to mass audiences. Yeah, I mean, we want to keep people in categories, right, so we can control them. But the second you start blending those categories, it shows people what they're actually capable of. We can talk about whether or not that's by design, but I do think that not showing people everything that they're capable of keeps them stagnant and oppressed. But... We, we see that there's a shift happening also there. So it's nice because there are other people understanding that they can write different types of movies um, or they can write different virtual reality pieces or things like that that really obscures the demarcation between genres and disciplines. So I'm curious about the panel that you're on at the Black Comics Expo. Um, it's called Afrofuturista, uh -huh. uh, Representations of Black Women in Sci-Fi. So tell me a little bit about the panel and specifically what you're going to be discussing on the panel. Well, the panel is about, you know, Afrofuturism, but highlighting women uh, at, in Afrofuturism and Afrofuturist narratives. So like world building that has an Afrocentric storyline and, and protagonists and characters in it. So I'm going to be talking about a piece that I made in collaboration with Hyphen Labs, wow, like two years ago now. It's called Neurospeculative Afrofeminism. And it's a fictitious piece that reimagines a hair salon uh, as a neuroscience lab where the owner of the salon is a world-renowned neuroscientist who has created a technology called the Octavia Electrodes, which is like a reimagination of a technology that already exists in neuroscience for brain optimization and for therapeutic purposes. So, Which, it should be noted, cannot be used if you have... Right. If you have a lot of hair right. or curly hair, it's really hard for you to use this thing. And it's so, almost like it was designed by white men. Yeah, which it <laughs> was. You know, it's like, who's in the room thinking about the design of these things. Right. And so this project was really about, you know, being a design provocation, but also reimagining a narrative and creating a world around it. In this piece, you go through the mirror and you like lose your body and you see visions. And it's, you know, it's like a really fantastical kind of hero piece, um, but it's highlighting black women's stories. And is this something that you engage with via like an Oculus or other type of like virtual reality headset? Right. So it's available for Oculus Rift and Oculus Go. And we usually do installations. So you see when you put on the headset, you see a hair salon and you're embodied in one of our characters, meaning that you become that avatar. And then we build out a physical installation of the hair salon. So, you know, you're coming into this hair salon space before you even put the headset on and it's, you know, everything is really beautifully rendered. So what is the meaning of that? The sort of like 
disembodiment of black women in this narrative? Well, the disembodiment is really kind of stripping away everything that we've been told that we are and been shown that we are through media. Because if you look back from Gone with the Wind to now, most of the time, the way that black women are represented in media is very specific. It's either you're a Jezebel or you're a mammy or, you know, you're these characters that really don't speak to the nuance of what it means to be a black woman. You know, the struggle, the power, the dignity, the beauty of it. And so by losing your body, you lose all of that. And you come to these new representations and they have a message for you that's essentially like you can be anything that you want to be. This is a clean slate. And then you come back and you've let all that go out into the ether. And historically, science fiction has sort of been maybe the one realm where there's an opportunity for women of color to subvert those traditional roles Mm -hmm. because we're imagining a, a fantasy future where people are judged perhaps on on different characteristics other than their skin color. Yeah. Um, like I think the first interracial kiss on television was on Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curious about <laughs> if you have any other thoughts about like the possibilities that the genre of science fiction opens up and how we imagine race. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm a big Ursula K. Le Guin fan and N.K. Jameson and Octavia Butler. It wasn't until I read Butler that I understood that the only way to get out of this mental slavery is to build our own narratives, you know, because like if you're stuck in something for so long, you have no choice but to start believing it. Um, and right now, just because this is top of mind for me, but I think it's in like artificial intelligence and it's in virtual reality. It's in these technologies that are becoming part of public imagination, but we're still kind of like in the tinkering phase, but they are going to revolutionize mm-hmm. our world. And so if we get in now and we understand how they work and we are there at the helm, like driving the ship, then I think that we have a real opportunity to make change. It reminds me a little bit of exposure therapy, things that you're afraid of, where it's like, oh, you've got to keep on envisioning the snake or like using VR to actually put yourself in a safe space with the snake. Mm -hmm. And that maybe if we do that to help people break free from like psychological chains that we can make a better world. Is that too optimistic to say? No, I don't think it's too optimistic. And I just wanted to say, like, when I talk about mental slavery, it's, you know, there are definitely systems around us that are still very powerful and that sometimes I think that there's no changing or affecting that, but rather we have to build up something else, something else in its place. And in order to do that, we need to understand that it's time to break free of, like, our society as it is now and really imagine something new that doesn't even have to look anything like what this looks like. And that's why VR is powerful and great. (laughs) So you're also part of an upcoming show called Black Mirrors, uh, which is a group of black artists who are all playing with virtual reality, augmented reality. Can you tell me a little bit about the show and what your piece is going to be? Yeah. um, Well, the show is that it's like, you know, holding up a mirror to blackness and sort of thinking through all of the iterations and ideology behind that. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. There's people doing some incredible work and just it makes me think more critically about what I'm making and what I'm doing. 
Um, so you have a background as a scientist, as mm-hmm. a molecular biologist, and you also call yourself a speculative neuroscientist. Yeah. Um, so can you talk to me a little bit about the fusion of the scientific part of your background with technology and with being an artist? Yeah. Well, I left science because I didn't see anyone that looked like me. And being in lab all day long, day in, day out, sometimes coming in at 2 o'clock in the morning to check on my mouse colonies, that starts to wear on you and to not have anyone to go to and ask for advice and mentorship. But there are people out here who are doing, struggling with the same types of questions that you are and doing the same incredible types of things. So this project was really born out of that. Like I was trying to get into a PhD program for neuroscience and I went online and I was like, okay, I don't want this to be like the same experience of when I was in grad school before and didn't see anyone to, you know, say, hey, was it this hard for you to? So I Googled like black women neuroscientists and this woman came back who works at Trinity College and she had posed to to her colleagues at a talk, where are all the black women in neuroscience? And I'm like, if this person is asking this question, you know, there seems to be something there. So yeah, and and I think this harkens back to the issue of like, well, who designed the electrodes that go on your head? If we don't have designers, if we don't have neuroscientists who are representing all of the communities that they will ultimately be serving, you're going to end up with a very narrow range of, of science. Yeah, and sometimes I don't understand how like, how can we don't get it right? You know, it can be really difficult to do collaborative work. But when you think about putting diverse teams together, there's also the challenges there. And, you know, I came from working in a corporate space after I left grad school. And it was a really good opportunity. You know, it was like a company that's doing really cool things in New York. And like, you know, everybody wanted to work there. And it was awesome. But to be on a team where the the diversity part of it really could use some help and you know all of these diversity and inclusion initiatives we see that they really kind of need a different focus in order for them to work in the way that they need to work it's about not just diversity and inclusion in terms of how you recruit it's yeah. then how do you make your entire workplace? Well, I heard Jenna Wortham and Wesley, what's Wesley's last name, from Still Processing. Mm-hmm. Do you listen to that podcast? Mm-hmm. They were talking about an idea called incorporation, which I think is interesting to think about. You know, it's like, how are we incorporating diverse voices, diverse subject matters into these companies without neutralizing them, mm-hmm. you know, without like saying, okay, you're here, you're at the table, but your culture has to be the exact same as everybody at this company. Like right. we want diverse groups because we want people to be thinking different and adding levels, layers of nuance to things. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ash. And if people want to see you and your panel on Afrofuturistic feminism, that's going to be <laughs> this Sunday, February 10th at BAM. Mm-hmm. And give us the details about where people can see your neurospeculative Afrofeminism piece. Yeah, I'll be a part of a um, group show called Black Mirrors at Wall Play on Canal Street. And that runs from February 16th to March 1st. Great. Thanks so much, Ash. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Our next guest
Ross knows a thing or two about the power of media and representation. His filmmaker parents followed him from kindergarten through high school for their film American Promise, which won a special jury prize at Sundance in 2013. Those who have seen the film may remember Idris Brewster as a precocious child, but he's now a full-blown adult, subverting traditional narratives in his own right. Here to talk about how technology can help rewrite white supremacist history is Idris Brewster, creative technologist with Movers and Shakers. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm curious about what your experience being filmed throughout your entire childhood, how did that lead to what you're doing today? Being filmed uh, throughout my childhood was something that a lot of people think was a lot for me, but it was something that was kind of normal. Like when I was five years old, they had a camera around me and they had a camera around some of my friends as well. And so that followed me throughout my time. Being around a camera, speaking was something that I'm accustomed to. Um, but it led me to a lot of introspection, especially after the time of really thinking about me and my place in society. And so I think the movie has a really strong message about the systemic problems in our education system today. Um, and I was a vehicle for that message. And I, so, so I think that that gave me a duty to kind of put my work moving forward to kind of further delve into that realm and create space for people like me. And the film was about you and your best friend um, as young black men sort of navigating the educational system and private schools. And I'm curious about if there were any sort of like lessons or takeaways about the power of narrative that maybe inform your work today as a creative technologist. Um, yeah, I think that representation is extremely key. And I think the great thing about what we did in terms of me and my parents was we took control of our own narrative and framed it how we exactly wanted to frame it and get it out into the world. I think a lot of people of color are strong content creators. We have strong stories. We have a lot of cultural capital in today's society, but we are not driving the conversation on our own narratives. And I, so I think an example that can be learned is people really getting out there and using different mediums to tell their own story. I think that's extremely important and valuable, and it's a key to our success moving forward, is really not relying on other people, other entities that are not of the same race and background to tell, to tell those stories. Tell me a little bit about the work you do with Movers and Shakers. So uh, at Movers and Shakers, we really use emerging technology to try to understand the past, contemplate the present. We want to use artistic expression to fuel social action. And so we use augmented reality as of right now as a medium to unearth stories of marginalized groups and people of color. And so we think that this is a tr very interactive and immersive medium that can facilitate change, not only in our cultural institutions, but in our public spaces and in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. And our previous guest, um, Ash Bacchus-Clark, who you know, was talking about some of her work that uses virtual reality. And you put on an Oculus headset and you enter this world. But augmented reality is different. So for those who may not have seen it, can you explain how it's different from virtual reality? So, um, so virtual reality is with the headset. I'm sure you've seen a lot of uh, people with big clunky things on their head. They're getting better. It's, it's getting a lot slimmer. Immersing yourself in a full virtual world where wherever you look, you see inside that digital screen is virtual reality. But is, is it possible to look cool while wearing one of those headsets? Oh, I haven't seen it to date. Haven't seen it to date. <laughs> we're not going to rule out the possibility. We're, not gonna, we're, not gonna, we're definitely not going to rule out the possibility. Right. It's going to happen soon. But With technological advancements, <laughs> it can happen, but not yet. So uh, that's virtual reality. That's virtual reality. Mm. But augmented reality is a little bit different. It's with your phone. So 
imagine your phone, like you go on Snapchat or you're going to shoot a story on Instagram. That camera feed is your portal into a different world. And so through that portal, you can see different digital artifacts, um, 3D models that are superimposed onto the world. So let's say if I pick up my phone, open up the app, the camera comes up like Snapchat, and you can see this table. Now I can either click my phone and then a 3D model of um, Toussaint Louverture will pop up right in there. And it's like, it's like in looking through the phone, it's like he's there. And you can move the phone around, kind of see him in action, just as if he's walking on your tables. Most people may be familiar with augmented reality. If they are familiar at all, through Pokemon Go, the game where people could catch Pokemons on their phone. Mm -hmm. But you guys are using it for a different purpose. You mentioned that you could project Toussaint Louverture right here. Tell me a little bit about how you are perhaps deepening the ways in which augmented reality is being used. So one of the ways that we were kind of inspired for this project was kind of looking around at uh, representation in terms of statues around New York City. So we have around 155 statues uh, in New York City. Uh, most of them are of men. Six are of women. Two of those women aren't. Six out of 155? Yes. Wow. And two of those aren't, are fictional women, aren't even real. And a lot, majority of those male statues are of slave owners. And how, many, how many of those 155 are black people? Not many, very little. <laughs> and yeah. so what the point is, is that the stories that our city was telling in our public spaces was a, city of our, was a story of our past, which is important to acknowledge, but at the same time, there was no nuance around any of these statues. There was no conversations around who these men really were, what they did, and what their f true effect was on society. So, so for someone like me and my partner, Glenn, Throughout our education, it was really tough for us to even find true stories of ourselves, let alone any stories of ourselves. We did not see ourselves in our history curriculums, in our English books. Um, in order to find out, in order to really dig deep on who we actually are in our history, we had to do a lot of research on our own, on our own time, looking through the web. And so through augmented reality, we think we can distill a lot of the information that people do not know and provide it to them in a very aesthetic, entertaining, and immersive way where people can really interact with the history. Not, and not only interact with the history, but also see how that relates to our current system. We're trying to uplift narratives that aren't traditionally told, so we kind of force people to interact and confront the wrongs of our history. And you do that by enabling people to place 3D monuments through augmented reality in their world, is that right? Our AR Monuments project uh, is going to be an augmented reality tour where people can go around certain historic sites around New York City, open up their phone, and be able to see into a different world. So they wouldn't be placing it, it would be there. If they went to Columbus Circle, which was the place of hot protest, which we were creating campaigns around for a long time, you would go to Columbus Circle, open up your phone, and see a certain monument of a specific person of color that we want to highlight. Mm -hmm. And so it's forcing people, when they're at the physical place, it's tying the digital to the physical. So when they're at that physical spot, then they can interact with our technology. And Columbus Circle was the site of the Columbus statue mm -hmm. that de Blasio decided not to tear down. And I believe his quote was, our approach will focus on adding detail and nuance to, instead of removing entirely, the representations of these histories. Um, but I think that one thing that people kind of miss when they talk about statues is that a statue isn't like history. 
Like that is a monument to somebody we think did a great thing. And like nobody's making arguments to put up like a Hitler statue. Exactly. Um, so talk to me. It sounds like your project is actually trying to add detail and nuance to Columbus's legacy in a way that the city declined to do. Exactly. No, we are, we're taking it into our own hands. We want to create change, and we cannot rely on the systems in place to do that for us. And so that's why we use augmented reality. It's a, it's a way to d democratize access to these narratives and the technology at the same time. And so it's twofold, and, we're, and I think that's why it's really awesome. And yeah, so I think it's really important that we, we really look deeply at who these people were and what their effect were on, on society today, and not just celebrate someone without really hearing the full story. So tell me about maybe one of these figures uh, in the AR Monuments project in New York City. Um, so we are, so we're currently in development on the specific places that we're trying to, um, we're, we're trying to uh, augment. Um, that's a long, a long conversation with a lot of history and a lot of research involved that we're doing. Uh, we're working with Professor Gina Ulysses um, from Wesleyan University on getting us truly academic, academically verifiable information and really make sure that the people that we're choosing to celebrate are ones that our community wants, ones that make sense and that show a brighter future. So the idea is that if you can't get governments to physically remove offending monuments, that you're at least going to supplement and tell the history that isn't implicit in the actual structure of the oppressor. Yeah, and exactly, like, even if we want to speak the language of the system, we can be like, well, how much does it cost to put up these statues? Like, what was the Shirley Chisholm statue? That costs around a million dollars. Our statues cost you, what, five to $10,000 to make. And so that's saving you money, but the impact that you have is so much greater. Mm -hmm. um, tell me as well about the Columbus augmented reality book that you put together. That was our initial foray into augmented reality. And so um, that was a tool we're creating. An, that's a basically an educational tool that we're creating to get into classrooms uh, and libraries across America. And so it would be an augmented reality book, sort of like a digital pop-up book where you open up, you open it up, and you see an illustration created by our in-house team. And so that is going to be basically, we want it to be a 10-minute experience where people can really immerse themselves in the history in a visual way. And so the feedback that we've had from the kids is especially great. And so we're looking forward to getting that started in our um, schools. And tell me a little bit about the show that you are involved in. You're both curating and your work with Movers and Shakers uh, is going to be represented. It's called Black Mirrors. Yes. Yeah, so um, on February 16th is the grand opening of our pop-up, Black Mirrors. Great and name. Thank you. Thank you. Black Mirrors, Reimagining Reality. And so we took that as a, a place to really show our day-to-day -day life, how we're interacting with the crazy world around us. And so we wanted to showcase black experiences, black narratives, and black art. And so this was the perfect opportunity to do that. However, we also took this opportunity to try to raise money for our partner, The Bail Project. And so The Bail Project is a fund that raises money for people who don't have bail. And so it's really great because um, it's kind of a revolving bail fund, so anytime any dollar goes to someone in bail and they go through that process, the dollar will come back into the fund, and so any dollar can be used multiple times. And so I think using this opportunity to, of art sales in order to fund direct social action and make a change is something I haven't seen a lot, and so we're really excited to get experimenting with this model and sort of give back, using the money to give back to our communities. That's great. One thing that 
we talked about with Ash was about how a lot of the people doing the design work are not coming from communities of mm -hmm. color. And so if somebody is creating the platform that then you can go and tell your own story, you may still encounter problems because the platform itself was not built with communities of color in mind. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you have feelings about that or if that applies to your work, but it sounds like you guys are forging new pathways with like augmented reality. And I'm just curious about your thoughts about the role of black technologists in reclaiming our own stories. I think right now there's a lot of the technologies being used to actively persecute our communities. And a lot of it is silent. A lot of the, a lot of the work being done against us is silent algorithms, uh, racial prejudice in our um, policing systems, um, our facial recognition algorithms that can't recognize black faces. Like these are all things that come because we are not in those rooms creating those algorithms. A lot of people think that data, algorithms, technology is some objective scientific fact but it is not. It's it programmed is, by a human. It is programmed by a human. Often a white human. Often a white human. <laughs> it's mirrors of our reality today. Algorithms are just um, subjective, subjective processes. And I think that if we're not in those rooms creating those algorithms, they're going to be used. The powers that be will use those against us. And so we need to arm ourselves with these. Uh, with these, we need to arm ourselves with these tools of the future. I mean. I have sometimes I have trouble seeing people of color space in the future, and that worries me a lot. And so I think that's why it drives my work to build a better future for us. And so we don't exist in a vacuum. All of these algorithms, all these technologies are being created by majority white males who are trying to keep power. We need to acknowledge that our data is being used as a socio-political and cultural weapon against us. And I think that needs to change. If you don't like your current reality, augment it. Exactly, exactly. Idris, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Woman2BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 